It was August 1st, 2009, in Israel's largest city, Tel Aviv. The weather was over 30 degrees Celsius, even though it was approaching 11 p.m. The Aguda building, Banoir, which housed the Tel Aviv Gay and Lesbian Association, is a restored Bauhaus building in Meir Park in the city center. As always, the center was attended by gay teenagers who participated in social activities and listened to music. This evening, several young people gathered for a youth get-together event, a weekly support group for homosexuals. Suddenly, the event was abruptly interrupted when a masked man dressed entirely in black entered the center. Then everything became chaos. The man carrying an automatic weapon began to open fire, shooting randomly at the young people. They desperately tried to hide under a bed and some tables, but avoiding the perpetrator's bullets was difficult because the center was so small and had only one terrace. After causing regular carnage, he fled on foot. Two people were left dead and 15 injured, six in critical condition. You are listening to Terror Talks, a podcast about some of the most spectacular terrorist attacks in history. In this podcast, I tell the stories of the terrorists, their victims, and the consequences for the survivors and society. About people who will sacrifice their own lives or the lives of others for a political, economic, religious, or social goal. Who was behind it, who they wanted to hit, and why. My name is Natasha Ingholm, and I'm a Danish journalist with a master's degree in Middle Eastern Studies based in Copenhagen, Denmark. Unfortunately, terror has come close to home a few times in my life. The massacre of 69 people on the small island Utøya, Norway, happened half an hour's drive from where some of my close family lives. A good friend was only a meter away from one of the suicide bombers under London Underground in 2005. He miraculously escaped with two burst eardrums. And finally, I worked in Afghanistan some time ago, where a major terrorist attack on a local cafe claimed the lives of 21 people. Among them was the owner, who had served me cake on my birthday the year before. Fortunately, I have never been in the middle of a terrorist attack myself. However, these experiences have awakened my curiosity, fascination, and not least, a fear that most people probably know about, that it will happen to me someday, that it comes close. Before you start listening, I must warn you that the podcast contains descriptions and details that can be violent and unsuitable for especially small children and people affected by hearing about murder and violence. Those injured in the attack on the Gay Youth Center screamed for help, struggled, or were carried up a flight of stairs to the street. We saw a woman running toward us, covered in blood. Adi Shimoni, who worked as a patron at the cafe across the street, told Israel's Channel 10 TV. We saw the gunman flee. He was wearing what looked like a ski mask. Adi Shimoni said he rushed into the center to help and saw many wounded and a lot of blood. The two who were left dead were 26-year-old Nia Katz of Givatayim 
and 17-year-old Liz Trubishi of Holon. Nia Katz worked as a volunteer counselor at the center. He was a student and had just finished his first year of computer science studies at the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya. He had previously served six and a half years in the Israeli army as a programmer and had come out as gay at 20. His mother said that she constantly missed him. He was very family-oriented, had a great head on his shoulders, was very active and volunteering to help others. His cousin and former roommate Tanakas also spoke highly of him. The kids there loved him because he was a big kid, she said. He knew exactly what they were going through, and he gave each person respect. He wanted to provide gay youth in Israel the kind of place he would have liked to have when he was younger. He wanted to make a place that was safe for gay youth. He truly was a sensitive soul who really did care about everyone. The father of Liz Tobishi, the 17-year-old victim of the terror attack, described his daughter as a unique child. Liz was a unique child. Someone told me she was like a judge. Kids would come to her in school to resolve conflicts. He told the media, Marive. One of Liz's classmates described Liz as very quiet in class, adding that she was reserved and introverted. He said she never talked about her sexuality. While friends and family mourned the dead, and the many injured, including six in critical condition, tried to heal their physical and mental wounds in the hospital, the police investigated the terrorist attack. Several hundred police officers launched a manhunt to locate the killer and potential masterminds. Roadblocks were set up in the city. The police closed down all other gay clubs and buildings that had gay connections near the crime scenes immediately after the shooting, in case there were any further attacks. Hundreds of police officers went door-to-door across Tel Aviv to see if anyone had seen, heard, or knew anything. All that was known was that the shooter had been masked, dressed in black, and used a gun to carry out the attack. There was no suggestion that his motive was related to nationalist terrorism which Israel had otherwise been frequently exposed to through the conflict with the Palestinians and its neighbors. The city's gay community stated that the killer had homophobic motives, that is, politically motivated reasons for attacking the gay community. The police, in turn, criticized them for jumping to conclusions that prejudice and hatred were the motive. But all leads went cold at that point. Many in the Israeli society reacted strongly to the terrorist attack. The shooting sparked widespread condemnation and was called, among other things, the worst attack on the gay community in Israel's history. The place of the attack was the heart of what was perceived of Israel's most liberal city, Tel Aviv. Spontaneous protest demonstrations were held just hours after the attack, with several hundred people marching in the streets and shouting, inciting homophobia leads to the blood of children on your hands. In the following days and weeks, more protests took place. A week after the attack, on August 8, 2009, 
a solidarity rally was held in Rabin Square in Tel Aviv. 20,000 protesters gathered to show solidarity with Israel's gay community, including the victims. Then-President Shimon Peres addressed the crowd, saying that the shots fired at the LGBTQ community hurt all of us as people, as Jews, as Israelis. Also participating in the demonstration were Education Minister Gidi Ansar, Culture Minister Limor Livnat, Welfare and Social Services Minister Isaac Herzog, various Knesset members and Israeli singers. The two victims of the terrorist attack, Nia Katz and Liz Trubeshi, were buried on the same date. In her memorial speech, Nia Katz's sister Chen stated, Our family stands behind the gay community, after which she placed a rainbow flag on his grave and continued, We must wave the pride flag and show what hatred can lead to. Nia Katz's mother Ayala said during the service, Nia always had a smile and infinite love for all living beings. He always respected himself, his life, and those around him. Mikhail, a family friend, said that Nia's death must not be in vain. He spoke directly to his dead friend. It is important that we remember you tried to help confused teens become better people, not like that vile murderer. Liz Trubeshi, the other victim, was laid to rest in a cemetery in Holon. Education Minister Gideon Sa'ar joined hundreds of relatives and friends for the service. Minister Sa'ar, who lived near the youth center, said, My daughter is Liz's age, and it hurts to think that a girl leaves her home and never returns. It's hard to imagine that such evil can exist, to take the lives of people who have yet to taste it. Liz's brother, Aitan, said in his eulogy, We love you very much. You were always our princess. I can't say goodbye. Mom woke me up last night after hearing of the attack, but I told her everything was all right. I never told you how much I love you. Ruthie Pixler, principal of Kiryat Sharad High School in Holon, which Trubeshi attended, said, I call her the angel. There is no greater tragedy than parents having to bury their children. The bullets that took your life also wounded our souls. Lizzie, you were a sweet girl with a face like a doll. A quiet, well-behaved girl. Most of all, I will remember your smile and eyes as blue as the sky and the water. The police investigated the attack for almost four years before anything new happened in the case. On June 5th, 2013, three men aged 20 to 40 were arrested, suspected of being behind the shooting. According to the Israeli newspaper Jerusalem Post, the shooting was planned by two of the three men. One had come to the Bar Noir Center as a 15-year-old in the months leading up to the terrorist attack in 2009 because he was struggling to find his sexual identity. There he met an older man who was a leader at the Bar Noir. One of those arrested, Haggai Felician, the teenager's relative, learned that the teenager had been seen a few times at Bar Noir and asked him what he was doing there. The then 15-year-old confirmed that he had attended the center and had been raped by the center leader. 
Felician allegedly decided to take matters into his own hands and, together with one of the other suspects, Talan Hangishayev, and the third arrested, planned to attack the leader. On the day of the shooting, Felician reportedly arrived at Banois looking for him. Unable to find him, Felician went berserk and shot those present. On June 23, 2013, charges against two suspects were dropped, while on July 10, 2013, Haggai Felician was indicted on two counts of murder. In February 2014, however, the prosecution's case against Haggai Felician also had to be dropped when new information indicated that the witness whose testimony formed the basis of the case had lied. Subsequently, the witness, identified in media reports as said, was arrested for fabricating false evidence. On March 9, 2014, all charges against Felician were dropped. Like many other societies, especially in countries with conservative, solid and religiously orthodox forces, homosexuality still arouses prejudice and feelings in families and public debate. Nitzan Horowitz, Israel's only openly gay politician in the Knesset parliament, said in the days after the shooting that the terrorist attack showed all the signs of a hate crime. This is the worst attack ever against the gay community in Israel, he said. This act was a blind attack against innocent youths, and I expect the authorities to exercise all means in apprehending the shooter. On the one hand, homosexuals enjoy great freedom in Israel. Gay soldiers serve openly in the military, and gay musicians and actors who are open about their sexuality are among the most popular in the country. In particular, Tel Aviv, where the attack took place, is one of the more liberal cities in the world. An annual celebratory gay parade is held, rainbow flags are often seen hanging from apartment windows, and the Barno R Center was paid for by taxpayers' money. But there is also the other side of society, where ultra-Orthodox Jewish leaders often incite hatred against homosexuals. In the more conservative Jerusalem, clashes have been frequent between religious and gay activists. In 2005, for example, an ultra-Orthodox protester stabbed three protesters at a gay parade in Jerusalem. The mother of one murder victim, Nia Katz, who worked as a counselor at the center, traveled to the United States. Katz guested a wider bridge, an LGBT Jewish organization that promotes relations between American and Israeli LGBT Jews. Here she gave a lecture in which she described how Israel has changed in two significant areas since the shooting. For one, it made Israel's LGBT community take more responsibility for bringing about change. Katz told parents that it's essential not only to accept their children into their family, but to participate with them in the LGBT community when they invite you. Katz didn't know much about the LGBT community when her son came out at age 20, and she didn't accept his invitation to attend Tel Aviv Pride or other LGBT events. I always had excuses, she said. I was sure that being there for him privately was enough. 
Looking back, being with him in the LGBT community was more important than I assumed. It is something she regrets today. When Niakats revealed his sexuality to his mother, all her dreams for him vanished. She recalled the moments she was with two-year-old Niakats on the playground, negotiating his marriage to a beautiful little girl with another mother. She realized he had to live out his dreams, not hers. My children are the most important thing in my life, and all I want for them is happiness, Katz said. I live to live my dreams, so the same goes for my children. My dreams for them are not relevant. The second way Katz believed the terrorist attack changed society was that it caused Israel's citizens and politicians to stop and reconsider their attitudes toward the LGBT community. President Shimon Peres reacted to the terror attack, stating that The shocking murder carried out in Tel Aviv yesterday against youths and young people is a murder which a civilized and enlightened nation cannot accept. Murder and hatred are the two most serious crimes in society. The police must exert great efforts in order to catch the despicable murderer. And the entire nation must unite in condemning this abominable act. Even the ultra-Orthodox Shas Party, a frequent critic of gays in Israel, issued a statement condemning the attack. Since no arrests have yet been made, we do not know with 100% certainty whether this was a politically motivated terrorist attack against the LGBTQ community or whether the attack was the work of a lone wolf or was motivated by personal motives. But the fact is that it was committed against a group of people who shared minority characteristics, which are often the targets of hate crimes, and that terrorist attacks often target the most vulnerable and innocent people in society. Against minority groups, ordinary people, and people just trying to live, survive, and live an ordinary everyday life. Qualitative studies indicate that discrimination against minorities, especially socioeconomic discrimination, that is the relationship between social behavior and economic status, is a parameter in the radicalization of people. Ironically, these marginalized groups often try to target other vulnerable groups so-called soft targets, such as ordinary people or other minorities. Soft targets are unprotected and or underprotected open access locations with low or no security, where civilians can be found in significant numbers. That could be a mall, a market, or public transportation. Ordinary people, because they are easily accessible, because they are often a proxy group for the people they really want to reach. The politicians who can change the framework or laws that the terrorists want to influence. It happened, for example, in connection with the bombs in Madrid in 2004, where Al-Qaeda wished to influence the Spanish politicians to withdraw Spanish soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan, which also happened. The research shows that 92% of all terrorist attacks over the past 25 years were linked to political violence perpetrated by the state and the existence of a broader armed conflict and took place in countries where this was widespread. After all, this attack is one of the rare ones 
if it was politically motivated by hatred of people with a different sexual identity than the majority. However, that does not make it any less terrible. Regardless of the motive for a terrorist attack, it has catastrophic consequences for victims and relatives. Chen Langer, the most seriously injured victim, spoke openly about his experiences after the shooting, committed suicide on June 15, 2020, after a long battle with PTSD resulting from the attack. He officially became the third victim of the shooting. After 10 injured, two became permanently disabled. A 16-year-old victim, or Jill, spoke afterwards of his fear that the shooting would lead to gay people feeling pressured to come out and that this was how parents find out that their children are homosexual. He visited the center weekly to participate in the activities for the 14 to 20-year-olds. It's just a place where teenagers hang out and listen to music, he said. I love that place, but I don't know if I'll ever return. As I said, the killer is still at large, so until a potential apprehension, we will not know the motive behind the attack. But this story is just one more proof that terrorist attacks impact victims, relatives and society that goes far beyond the attack itself. This episode is a tribute to all the brave people in the LGBTQ community who often face prejudice, hatred and even hate crimes. And because this community is symbolized by the rainbow flag, I will end this episode with this quote from American author and motivational speaker Katrina Meyer. Rainbows are a reminder that even after the darkest cloud cover and the fiercest storms, there is still beauty. You have listened to Terror Talks, a podcast about terror and radicalization. This episode was written, produced and narrated by me, Natasha Ingholm, while John Lobb voiced the man in the story. Also a big thank you to consultant and journalist Lars Wilber, who contributed with sparing and wise thoughts, and consultant Michael Sinan Amirowski for help with insight into the LGBTQ plus environment. You will find the episode sources in the show notes where you listen to your podcast. I would also greatly appreciate if you could give the podcast a positive review and tell friends and family who might be interested in listening along. Tune in to the next episode where I talk about the deadliest attack on a plane before 9-11. Also feel free to go in and follow Terra Talk social media on Instagram and Facebook where you can see pictures from today's story.